Hey, everybody. We are live here on Facebook. It's time for the Gestalt IT Rundown. Uh, I'm Rich Straffolino. I host this every week or most weeks, some weeks, some weeks. Last week, it was not. Uh, we were live from Pure Accelerate, which was really awesome, really cool. And we're glad we could bring that to you. Uh, but I'm joined by Tom Hollingsworth. We'll get started with the show in just a minute. Got a lot of great news and uh, excited to bring that to you uh, this week. Tom, are you excited? Yeah, I'm very excited, Rich. I, I heard the <laughs> smile emerge from your face. It was a very disturbing sound, I have to say. Uh, okay. Uh, you've all heard the sound of Tom's smiles, and um, hopefully some of you will be able to sleep at some point later in your lives. Um, not me. So uh, I think we'll get started, Tom. Are you ready to uh, rock and roll with uh, the uh, Enterprise News? Let's do this. Okay. Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hansworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Rich, and happy National Comic Book Day. Also, happy My Birthday Eve to you. <laughs> Yes, uh, I wasn't going to mention that you are, in fact, uh, the birthday boy. But since you brought it up, uh, I think we'll have to stroke that ego and uh, happy birthday. What does this make it for you? Uh, uh, what? I, I don't even know how I'm supposed to approach this. Should I guess comically low? Uh, happy no, 29th no. birthday, Tom? Okay, That's generally a pretty safe bet. No, this will be 41 for me. Ah, okay. So a well-seasoned networking nerd. Uh, let's see if all of that life experience can help us make sense of the technology and enterprise news uh, from this week. Uh, first up here, we have interesting news out of uh, Western Digital. Uh, they announced that they are getting out of the enterprise storage game, selling its IntelliFlash uh, business to DDN uh, and putting its active scale business for sale as well. WD only recently bought IntelliFlash from uh, Tedgile and has been investing in new releases as late as July. So this, they haven't really given a lot of signals that this was going to be happening. It seemed kind of sudden. Uh, this will join assets uh, for on DDN side from Tintree and Nexenta. Uh, so it looks like that's becoming a little bit of an island of misfit storage. Uh, they're buying kind of the scraps of all those failed uh, companies at some point. Uh, this seems like a stark turnaround from WD's previous strategy, but I... I feel like no one was under any impression that their future growth was going to be contingent on anything but selling to OEMs and hyperscalers, right, Tom? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's what this is. It was kind of shocking the fact that WD actually did try to make a run of it with with all of the things that they were doing. Um, and honestly, the least surprising part to me is that WD decided to make their exit. I mean, when you look at a lot of the traditional companies out there, you know, IBM is probably the perfect poster child for this. Get rid of anything that has any parts to it. Uh, WD knows that their market is not enterprise. Uh, they're consumer focused. So this makes all the sense in the world. In fact, I'm running a WD flash drive over here in the, my PC. Um, surprisingly to me, though, is the DDN purchase because what do they need with another storage company? Love you guys. It's great. Um, I think I know what the plan is, though. They're going to take elements from the uh, from all of these acquisitions from Nixenta, from Tentry, from IntelliFlash, and they're going to build some kind of strange storage Voltron. And I think it's going to work. 
um, provided that they can keep this thing running and, and working. But they're going to need six or seven or eight months to digest the whole mess before they can really um, pull the pieces out of it that work. Yeah, I thought it was interesting kind of in the coverage of this kind of unsung is this story about DDN and how they're bring you know, they're they have acquired these companies or these assets, uh, product lines, or what have you, that have their own customer bases that would seemingly be disaffected or looking to move to something else and are actually rolling in features uh, from uh, Nexenta into Tintree systems and stuff like that. So maybe, you know, that's what's, you know, they're acquiring customers almost more than they are technology at this point. I'm sure they're not exactly paying top dollar for this given the quick turnaround it seems like wd just wants to get this off their books uh as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible um so you know maybe that's the the bigger story here and yeah i mean uh western digital competing in the oem and consumer market there's like what two players uh outside of what of western digital in that market as opposed to enterprise storage which has all sorts of established and startups uh companies to compete with it seems to make a lot of sense to move to where you're successful instead of, you know, chasing money after a market where there's potentially not that much growth anyway. Yeah, I would agree there. Uh, in the other acquisition news, HP acquired the endpoint security company Bromium. The two companies already have an ongoing two-year partnership for HP's SureClick malware protection, so it seems like this should be a pretty easy integration to go going forward. Uh, Bromium uses virtualization and containerization to isolate untrusted browser tabs uh, for sites and uh, for overall system security, and has been a mainstay of HP's commercial PCs for some time. Tom, do you think we'll see... A- vendors out there kind of following suit, uh, really getting serious with their endpoint protection, if they're not already? Yeah, I think we're actually going to see that. And a lot of this is going to come down to the fact that this is a defensive play against VMware's carbon black acquisition, because VMware has an integration piece now into the hypervisor level. So if you want to play in that realm, you're going to have to have your own integrated solution that you can then put on top of that. Uh, Hats off to Simon Crosby for for his exit. Uh, I know that he's been kind of working behind the scenes on this and, and I, the, the press about this had fallen off quite a bit recently. I I don't know where or why, but um, you know, this, this is a good thing for him. I don't know if it's a good thing for HP though, because I really don't know where the synergy from this is coming from. And we've all seen the fits and starts of HP trying to become a software company ever since Leo Apotheker decided, Hey, (laughs) I'm going to spend a whole bunch of money on a company that I probably shouldn't have bought. Um, I don't think that this is going to be nearly on the level of that. Yeah. Mm. I don't think this is going to be on the same level as that, but I just, I'm cautiously optimistic to see how they're going to make this work. Yeah. The only thing is anytime you have like a close partner like this that gets acquired, to me, that always sends mixed signals to the overall ecosystem. Now you're dealing with PCs, Mm -hmm. right? No one's going to stop making software for PCs because HP buys somebody. Um, But if, I, I don't know. This seems like it might have some weird knock-on effects for uh, for future partners, maybe that aren't quite as closely aligned as someone like clearly um, Bromium was that had you know some pretty deep uh, partnerships uh, going on with HP already pre-acquisition. Yeah, and this like Carbon Black and VMware makes sense because VMware provides endpoint software for things. HP e sells hardware. Sort of. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure. Are you going to install Bromium on a on a storage array? Are you going to put it on a SimpliVity chip or somewhere in Plexi? I don't. Well, so, no, so Tom, this is this is HP printers and PCs. And oh, business PCs. So we're <laughs> so we're not going to be seeing uh, that integration. But so I mean, again, but the the question still remains of 
how valuable that is long term for them. I mean, maybe the question was extending the partnership another two years would have been a, a trivial amount more to buy the company outright. I didn't see an exact yeah. figure on this, so I don't I don't know you know what the financials are on it. But it may have just been we've invested so much money in this partnership already. Let's just bring them in house. We like the tech, and let's make it happen. Mea culpa for not reading the show notes. You are correct. It is HP Inc. <laughs> that did this, not HPE. This makes all the sense in the world to me now. Um, they're going to containerize the printer application that's constantly alerting you about how much ink you don't have in your printers so that it can't consume all of your system resources because that thing eats more resources than SQL Server. Okay, this makes total sense to me now. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see if this one makes sense to you, Tom. Uh, Microsoft officially entered the security information and event management market with the general availability of Azure Sentinel. It's been in testing for a little while now. This can run in the cloud or on-prem and analyzes logs and other sources to look for anomalies and other security incidents with MS touting their advanced machine learning and AI for better analysis. I mean, if you're familiar with, uh, you know, that uh, SIEM market, um, you know, this is nothing new uh, describing it. Uh, Sentinel has native hooks into Azure and Office 365, not surprising there, but it can import from third-party sources because it I guess wants to be a viable product. Uh, pricing runs at $2.46 per gigabyte analyzed. So really following that Splunk model in terms of ingest here. But how worried should companies like SolarWinds, Splunk, Logarithm be by Microsoft getting into this market? Mm, SolarWinds, no. Splunk, maybe. And here's why. SolarWinds has always had a very specific market segment that they're going after. They're going after the low tier. Mm-hmm. Um SMBs, SMEs. I don't think that they're going to have any problem to worry about here because their solutions are still on-premises. Their solutions are still very focused on providing maximum value for minimum cost. Um, Splunk, on the other hand, okay, now we're starting to get into problems. Here's why. Um, Why would I buy your product when they are going to give that to me as a line item on my OPEX bill? That's that's what it boils down to. You are effectively fighting. You know, think about every Apple software company that you've ever seen. Why would I run Alfred when I have Spotlight? Well, unless there's something specific about Apple, uh, Alfred or Quicksilver or any of those other companies that are making Spotlight replacements, why don't I just use the one that's built into my PC or my Mac already? So you've got a huge hurdle to overcome. The inertia of it's already on here anyway. And if Azure starts doing things like offering free trials or offering smaller amounts of data, you know, let's scrub a gig per month for free. I mean, they're done. This is out. Well, and what makes it interesting to me is, you know, yeah, that's always kind of been the knock on one of the knocks on Splunk uh, is the cost factor, right? That it's because it's ingest based, you have to be very careful about what you feed or otherwise costs can kind of get out of control in Mm -hmm. a hurry. If Microsoft can kind of solve that component and, you know, having deeper hooks into Azure, they can kind of know exactly what's going in there, maybe give you better cost control uh, tools on there. And Mm -hmm. if it can provide functionality that's on par with what people are already expecting with Splunk. Now, Splunk has a whole partnership ecosystem. They're partners with a ton of people. They have deep integrations with a lot of other services too. So I don't think they're completely defenseless here, but Azure, again, it's number two. It's a huge player. Tons of uh, people are already using it. If it's something that they can, again, just all of a sudden checkbox and it's on their line item, that causes a big problem. Uh, I wonder if we're going to hear Splunk acquisition talks if this takes off. I don't know. Maybe. Mm, Maybe. I don't know what the financials look like, so we will have to see. Uh, Speaking of having to see, uh, we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to get a look at the uh, 16-core Ryzen 9 3950X 
process. They announced that it is now being delayed until November, originally set for release in September. AMD cited high demand and the need to build up sufficient stock for the launch, so they couldn't launch it because it would be too popular early. AMD also announced the next generation of Threadripper processors will come to market in November as well. Those chips will start at 24 cores, although we're not seeing really any other product details, but it looks like uh, late in the fall, we're going to be seeing a ton of cores coming from AMD. This kind of resurgence from AMD has been dependent on them executing, and this is kind of the first high-profile miss we've seen with the launch of them. Should we be worried uh, given that they're making hay now in the data center uh, very aggressively, that they're not able to hit this target on this seemingly very important chip for them. Um, no, I don't think this is a huge mess for them. Um, okay, the schedule slipped like what, uh, five, six weeks at the most? Two months, yeah. Yeah, so here's what's happening. When you think about it from a, from a manufacturing perspective, um, I can build 7 million iPhones this quarter because I know I'm going to sell them in like two days. But what's the market for a 16 core chip? I I really don't know. So do I build a lot of them and then get stuck with inventory that I'm going to have to mark down and take a bath on? Do I build a few of them hoping that people are going to want to buy them and then have to catch up? And I think what happened was, is that AMD went conservative and said, we're going to build a few of them. And then when they announced it, everyone went, I want one of those because (laughs) <laughs> I don't, I don't know, uh, final cut things, pro. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then they went, Oh crap, we don't have enough. So rather than ship the first batch and then have outages, they said, why don't we just hold on, give it another month. We'll have enough. You can go down to micro center and buy that. And like a Rolls Royce and a package deal or something. I, micro center runs <laughs> these really weirdness things. Um, <laughs> The problem is we're still getting down. So I've seen a lot of Ryzen, like the the smaller Ryzen stuff that's been kind of discounted and and on sale and things like that. Um, What are we going to use a 16 core processor for? Um, Obviously consumer. Yeah. Don't care about that. Um, What are we going to use this for in the enterprise? What kind of workloads are we doing with this with on-prem servers? And why wouldn't you just wait, upgrade to a Threadripper, get eight more cores that you're still not going to use all of? I mean. I'm kind of at a loss, but again, maybe yeah. that's my old man on the porch, get off my lawn kind of syndrome. Uh, I mean, when provided with cores, people have a tendency to find things to do for them, but I agree there there isn't a a direct use case necessarily why you would need 16 versus 12. You know, like uh, I think that's part of the bigger problem here is that AMD is offering effectively like this broad spectrum of anything from four to you know, 24 or more cores going on here. And at the high end, there's always going to be people that need more multi-threaded uh, workloads, whether you're talking about uh, uh, crypto mining or virtualization, where you just need a ton of uh, a ton of resources that way. Um, and on the low end, you know, there's just people that need basic compute or, you know, uh, something that's just not very multi, uh, uh, multi-processor intensive or something like that. So in the middle, in the mushy middle there, maybe this, I, I feel like this, maybe this Ryzen 9, because it's going to be launched effectively, around the same time as these uh, denser Threadrippers. Admittedly, it's a different platform, so there's a, there's the, the customers maybe aren't going to be exactly the same. Whether we will see that it's a little too... The AMD is crowding itself out of the market with too many cores and too many products there. Yeah. Hmm. Speaking of being potential... 
the market. It's time to talk about Slack versus Microsoft Teams, our favorite one-two puncher on the Gestalt IT rundown. Uh, we've seen some troubling lack of traction for paid Slack usage among Fortune 500 or larger organizations versus its rival Microsoft Teams. But new info from Cruise Consulting shows that Slack still looms large in the startup scene. Among 200 funded startups surveyed, Cruise found that 59% paid for Slack versus just 12% paying for Office 365 and then effectively getting Microsoft Teams. Uh, Microsoft numbers uh, were up in this regard. They're up from like 9%, I think, a year ago to 12% now. Slack slightly down 63% to 59%, uh, but still showing a, a very strong and not like at a, his, this is not a historic low for them. They've kind of fluctuated uh, between the high 50s, low 60s in that space uh, for about a year now. Uh, among large enterprises, however, the situation is reversed with 33% planning or using Slack as a paid offering right now versus 65% for Microsoft Teams. Perhaps the most troubling is that 13% of these organizations say they were looking to reduce their spend on Slack versus 1% on Teams. That gets a little weird because Teams is integrated into Office 365, so probably their ability to limit spend there is very limited in and of itself versus Slack where you can kick users off or something like that. Uh, but you know, what can Slack kind of do to counteract this narrative? And is it enough to have that mindshare and the money of those startups? How's Novell coming with that mindshare that they had 20 years ago? <laughs> no, here, here's the problem. And, and you hit the nail right on the head and let's back the truck up just a little bit to, I don't know, five minutes ago when I said you have to overcome inertia the reason why it's really easy to use Teams is because when you install Office and who here does not have Office installed anywhere, oh, look, we have Teams. Ah, we might as well use this. And I know that most people that I talk to that use Teams on a regular basis, it's not like it's night and day different. It's not like it's the difference between going from, you know, using Pine for your email client to Outlook. Uh, they're very close to each other. Uh, there's a couple more features that are useful in teams like document management versus in Slack. So it's an equivocation. I'm using the one, whichever one I used before or that I feel more comfortable with. And if more comfortable means I've already bought it, then yeah. So that's what's going to happen. Now think about this. I am a member of, well, way too many Slack teams right now. Um <laughs> But realistically speaking, I think out of the five that I use on a daily basis, one of them is paid for. Everybody else that uses it kind of as a community gathering point or as an informal discussion group, they don't pay for it. What are we paying for? Message retention? Don't care. Businesses will pay for message retention. But if businesses are already paying Microsoft licensing fees, if they're going to have to double up, they might as well pay more and get more Microsoft services than they do paying for Slack. Slack's got to find a buddy. Basically, that's what this boils down to. You've got to find strategic partners that are willing to either bundle your service or offer your system at a discounted rate to integrate into their office um, suite. Um, somebody needs to call WordPerfect today and let's make this happen. <laughs> the weird thing to me is that it seems like a lot of this is a reaction against kind of the original enthusiasm for Slack. You know, it solves email. Uh, it's so great. It, it, it really, you know, allows for this collaborative communication, unlike email, that kind of stuff. And because that growth was rather organic, it was rather unplanned. And as you pointed out, like everyone that's on Slack seems like they're on at least five or six different Slack teams. It can get a little overwhelming or you're not keeping up. And then it starts to feel like a burden like email versus Microsoft Teams, which generally speaking comes and is deployed, I think, more on a top down level. Whereas like Slack, you could have like five or six employees all 
all of a sudden, you know, especially if you're in a startup, you know, five or six employees just decide to use it. Uh, you know, the big boss says, okay, yeah, that's fine. We're a small team. We can roll it out tomorrow. As opposed to Microsoft Teams, which is generally much more of a structure, much more of a plan, I would think. Uh, I may be generalizing here and not 100% accurate, but maybe it's that difference between, you know, Slack is this product of enthusiasm versus uh, Microsoft Teams is a is definitely like a work thing. I don't know if people are joining five or six different Microsoft Teams teams uh, because they're, you know, they kickstarted a project and they have a Microsoft Teams channel or, you know, it's it, there's more of a community aspect to it. So maybe, weirdly, it's the enthusiasm for Slack that is also capping what can be seen as the business benefit of it going forward. And, and I, like you said, I have no idea how you counteract that or if you even want to uh, necessarily. Mm-hmm. And that may become a, a problem for them that uh, a Gordian knot that they can never untie. I used an analogy. Finally here, Cloudflare launched a uh, launched the bot fight mode as a free opt-in service for all users. This will serve dedicated uh, this will serve dedicated bots with a small snippet of computationally intensive code, effectively an unsolvable problem that just maxes out CPU on a server and probably increases cloud compute costs for the operator as well. Uh, their overall goal is to dissuade the pervasive use of bots to scrape data at will uh, by just making that barrier to entry a lot more expensive. But to counteract the increased energy and carbon footprint for maxing out a bunch of servers, it will also plant 25 trees to offset the carbon emissions for each bot so defeated. I don't exactly know how they're counting that, whether it's any bot that they encounter, they're planting 25 trees. Seems like a lot of trees. Uh, Also, Cloudflare is uh, working with the Bandwidth Alliance to take down bots that are hosted with its partners. Effectively, the Bandwidth Alliance will provide uh, an IP address and they'll be able to kind of block that more directly. Cloudflare plans to make the bot fight mode a default setting by the end of the year. Tom. Do you see any downside to this approach? Yeah, I'm having trouble seeing the forest for the trees. Um, first of all, congratulations to Cloudflare for creating a way to defeat the Borg if and ever we, we ever encounter them. Um, <laughs> thanks. I, 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 for one, appreciate that. Um, th- I think that, though, this is the, the issue is, is that Cloudflare, being an end-user company, end-user-focused company, is trying to solve the symptoms and not the problem. The symptoms are bots. So how do we do that? Well, we defeat the bots by running up their cloud hosting bills. Okay. Do you really think these people are doing this from cloud hosting things? Or are they doing it from botnets that they've created from other people's machines or what have you? I mean, the the problem is, is that if you treat the symptoms, the symptoms will move. The problem is, is that there's too many bots out there. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's an easily solvable problem, but what I'm saying is, is that I like the bandwidth alliance piece more off. It's better that way. If you start constricting the ways that the bots can interact by, you know, I don't know, rate limiting them to a kilobit per second of bandwidth or something like that, um, it will fix the problem effectively. Now, what you also run into is that when you've encapsulated this bot problem, you know, at, let's say at the Cloudflare level, if Cloudflare blocks all the bots, well, what happens if you don't use Cloudflare? It's like Bot City out there. It's like you know <laughs> running your web browser without a pop-up blocker. Oh my God, the horror! Um, I don't know exactly how you fix this problem, but I th- this is the same issue that we have a lot with uh, spam. There uh, years ago, there was a solution for spam. Um, when your mail server connects to you to send a message, you make it solve a mathematical problem that takes like three seconds. Um, if you are a legitimate user, three extra seconds on a mail message isn't going to kill you. But for someone sending unsolicited bulk email, three extra seconds is literally money. 
And so that was the solution for making it cost too much to send spam. The problem is one, nobody would ever implement that because it's overhead and it's easy, hard to troubleshoot. And two, all you got to do is get two extra people to click on a spam message and you've made enough money to cover your bandwidth bills for the, the year. So I don't, props to you guys for trying to fight this Cloudflare. I don't think this is going to do it. Yeah, it does feel like, you know, Cloudflare has this reputation for being a quote unquote good guy company. It's, you know, that that is, you know, they're, they're a for-profit company. Like, let's make no bones about this. And this feels a little bit, you know, PR friendly for them. Um, they're getting into some weird waters with, you know, potential censorship issues. So maybe get an easy mm-hmm. win by saying, hey, no one is going to go out there and defend you know, people that make data scraping bots that potentially violate your privacy and, and you know, scrape information that they're really not supposed to have or, or the intention was there was not for them to have that. Um, and it also happens to solve a problem for Cloudflare, uh, <laughs> you know, at the same time. So, uh, again, uh, I appreciate any way that they're going to try to eliminate bots. I hope this works. You know, you, you mentioned botnets. I mean, the, the, the one benefit of botnets that, yes, this doesn't solve that problem. The At least with a botnet, though, that because that is somewhat centrally managed or, or at some point there's a there's a there's a spider in that web theoretically that's a single point of failure that if that goes down then it takes down a huge botnet or something like that and this addresses kind of the other side of that because i do think there are tools out there to fight uh that that are being used to fight actively fight botnets and that kind of stuff so you know it, it does solve part of it but i think the bigger thing is that it's good pr for cloudflare in the long run and keeps them in the good guy category so it just dawned on me, I have a better solution for Cloudflare. Rather than giving them an intense mathematical problem to solve that will spike their CPUs, um, take a page from Google and uh, give them regular expressions to evaluate to figure out which ones are going to crash your network. Win-win for everybody. Wow. I like that. I went that, there. That is the networking nerd approach uh, endorsed <laughs> uh, by the birthday boy, Tom. Th- thank you so much uh, for being on the run. And find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined. Oh, just head to Twitter. Uh, networkingnerd.net is uh, my blog. Networking Nerd is my Twitter. Uh, gestaltit.com. Uh, just search for Tom Hollingsworth. I have a lot of great articles there. More coming every day. You can check out some of my favorite posts that I've been reading on the internet. Um, just put a couple up this week from uh, friends Orhan Ergen, and there should be one coming out from Royal Denisio about uh, opportunistic wireless encryption later this week. Fantastic. That's my favorite type of encryption, uh, the opportunistic. Uh, I'm Rich Straffolino. You can find me on Gestalt IT as well or on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That just about does it for the Gestalt IT Rundown. We'll be back next Wednesday running down the IT news of the week. 12.30 p.m. Eastern time for that. Uh, check us out Facebook.com slash Gestalt IT and watch us live. Uh, Tom, thank you so much uh, for me, for Tom, for everyone here at Gestalt IT. Here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.